Thank you, Graham. And check my mic levels. I'm looking good back there. Thumbs up, that's good. Uh, just before I begin, I'll do a quick announcement. We, we announced this to the church family, and I'm sure the news has got around, but it's getting down to the final stretch now of a couple of weeks before uh, I will be going on sabbatical. I have about a month of vacation saved up, and then the elders have graciously offered me a three-month sabbatical to tack on to that, and I'm going to be using uh, this summer um, for a little bit of rest, but also to uh, visit a few other churches, uh, take a seminary course, uh, just engage in, in prayer and some visioning, uh, to come back in the fall with sort of a fresh tank of creativity and a fresh vision that the elders and I have been working on over the last couple of years, and uh, just be able to uh, look at the next seven years. So I'm in my eighth year now here at Lakeside, and so I'm looking at what do the next, what's the next week of years look like at Lakeside, and how do we, how do we get through that? So uh, my sabbatical will begin at the end of this month. I have two more messages after this, and then uh, uh, beginning the first of June, uh, that will be the start of my sabbatical. And we've got uh, elders and other preachers and missionaries and other people lined up for the Sunday morning, so you won't miss out on any of that. And uh, there's still a possibility I might sneak in one appearance in the summer, but uh, we'll see how that works out from the road. And, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's just an announcement to everybody so that everybody is aware, uh, but I'm pretty sure most people knew that was happening. But we're down to the countdown now, so it's a little crazy with just a couple of weeks left to go. And uh, yeah, I'll touch on that maybe a little bit, important role that you have a little bit later in the sermon as far as that goes. So we're continuing in our 316 series. This week is 1 Corinthians 316. I'll just read the verse and then we'll start. 1 Corinthians 316 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, when I look at myself in the mirror on any given day, my first thought is rarely, in fact, I don't think it has ever been, there is a temple of God. <laughs> you don't have to laugh that loudly from the peanut gallery, right? My body is more like a shack worthy of a family of raccoons than a temple of God. When I think about the things that I've done, when I think about the places that I've gone, when I think about the incredible quantities of fast food I've consumed, there is just nothing temple-like in this body in my mind. And yet, there it is. The Bible tells me that the Spirit of God dwells in me. God is present even in this, even in that, before you laugh too hard. He's present in you as well. And God dwells in this temple. Now, just that one thought, that's one verse, and that one concept, that one thought, that one claim of the Apostle Paul that's echoed throughout the Gospels and through the whole New Testament must have implications on the Christian life. The fact that we are the dwelling place of the Spirit of God, that our body is a temple of God, has to have implications. It's an idea that is so profound it can't leave us unchanged. God has always desired to be present with his people, 
from his first walk in the Garden of Eden until today, God is always making a way to dwell with us. Despite our seeming constant attempts to frustrate his desire to dwell with us, he continues to make ways to be among his people. There's just this beautiful God-with-us reality that traces itself from the garden to the manger to the present-day church, and it should shape our Christian life. It's impossible to live the Christian life fully without knowing the privilege and the mercy that we experience as the present-day temple, the earthly residence of the living God. And so that's what we're going to unpack this morning. And, and before we get into the New Testament reality of it, of our body being the temple, we need some context, I think, of what the temple of God means. What is the temple? Because the temple is so important to everything about God's people and his presence with us. So we're going to look at the context of the, uh, of the temple from Genesis up to John. As we looked at more in depth last week, we were created as image bearers of God. And, and this time in the Garden of Eden is our first glimpse of our holy purpose. And, and for a moment, we fulfilled it. There was no need for a temple of God for him to be imaged in creation. We were his image. And there was no need of a temple for God to be present with his creation. He walked with us in the garden. He was present and, his, and the relationship was intact. But as we saw last week as well, that we disordered the image of God in us and we broke the relationship with God and we distanced him from ourselves. And so the presence of God was gone. But then God gives Abraham a promise that he's going to restore the broken relationship and gather a people to himself again. And if you jump ahead to Exodus, Israel has been living apart from the presence of God in slavery for over 400 years. And, and God brings them out as a nation from Egypt and he instructs them to build a tent or to build a tabernacle, which in Hebrew means a dwelling place, for God to be present with his people again, almost like Eden. The tent eventually becomes a temple that is a house of prayer for all nations. The temple is the presence of God for anyone who approached. So the tent and the temple were meticulously designed. And if you go back through the Old Testament, you can see the design that went into the tabernacle and the temple. It was designed and decorated to be an image of God and his presence. It had the courtyards for gathering and the altars and the basins for purification and sacrifice. It had the holy place and the holy of holies with the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. And God's presence was there as the Shekinah glory. The tabernacle and the temple was almost Eden recaptured. But as you keep going through the Old Testament, you remember that the people rebelled again, choosing evil and injustice and contempt for God. And so the temple is destroyed. The presence of God is literally removed from among his people again. And it's a rebuilt eventually, but then the weakness of physical temples is already apparent and that temple is destroyed as well. And so the message here is that we need something else. We, we need something even temporarily as we await the final kingdom because tabernacles and temples are not cutting it. And so when the disciple John begins his record in the New Testament or in the new covenant with God, he begins by telling us the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14 says. So here we are again, God desiring to dwell among his people in the person of Jesus Christ, who is called Emmanuel, God with us. And, and God dwells fully in the person of Jesus. And then Jesus refers to his own body as a temple, saying that it will be destroyed and in three days be rebuilt in John 2. 
And Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that Jesus was a better priest, a better sacrifice, and a better temple than what came before. And then Jesus promises disciples that the temple that they see in Jerusalem will be torn down to its foundation, and then he promises them that they too will have the Spirit of God inhabit them in John 14. And so you see from the very beginning, God desires to dwell with his people, and there is this temple theme that repeats itself as God desires to dwell among his people in a tabernacle, in a temple of stone, in the person of Jesus Christ. And then finally, we come to the teaching now that he dwells in us. So we come to this teaching of the Apostle Paul and the other apostles, 3.16 in 1 Corinthians. Where is the temple of God now that Jesus has returned to heaven? Who is bearing his image and in whom does God's presence reside in the new covenant? No longer a temple built by human hands, but rather a temple built of human beings that have the Spirit of God. And that temple reality for us as Christians carries with it a lot of meaning as we live out our lives as believers. And so starting from 1 Corinthians 3.16, I want us to consider three things. What it means that the church, the people gathered as Christians, is the temple of God. Secondly, what it means that Christians are the temple of God. And then thirdly, the implication that both Christians and church together are the temple of God. So first of all, let's consider the church as the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16 introduces this concept to us. Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And so this is the whole church as the temple of God. The you that the Apostle Paul writes here is the plural you. It's you all or y'all. Y'all are the temple. Y'all you Christians gathered together are the temple of God. He's talking about me. He's talking about you. He's talking about Lakeside. He's talking about the wider church of Halliburton. He's talking about the universal church of the world. The whole church is the temple of God. And he says, you collectively are now the temple Now, the immediate context here is of a warning. He says, if anyone tries to disrupt or tear apart or destroy a group of believers or destroy a church, then God will destroy them. He says, only enemies of God would ever deliberately destroy a church. That's the warning that Paul has in this text. But our our focus today isn't on that. The focus is on the continuity of the temple theme. We together now are the temple of God. And the important characteristics of that temple that we lift from what Paul says here is that the temple is holy and that the Spirit of God dwells in it. So what are the implications of then that? That that means that the things that we do together as a church, when Paul looks at the church, when God looks at the church, the things that we do as the people of God together are holy things. It's the holy temple and the holy presence of God, no longer in a tent or a building or on a mountain in a certain city. The holy presence of God is found in a special way wherever and whenever Christians gather. So what we're doing right now is not just like any other gathering. This is a holy experience. And the word holy means separated or set apart. So the holiness of God's temple is that it's separated from sin. It's set apart uniquely from the world. We're in the world, but not of the world, as Jesus says in John 17. And as a gathering of Christians, we should recognize that set-apartness, that separation, that holiness in what we do. It means we do things differently here 
than is maybe done in the world. Christians talk to each other differently. We marry differently. We raise children differently. We disagree differently. We use our money differently. We work differently. We play differently. We party differently. We discipline differently. We buy differently. We sell differently. Every part of our lives as Christians is holy and set apart, and the holiness of God is meant to indwell the things that we do together. We're being conformed to a different image in communion with someone pure and someone holy. Not that we ourselves are pure, but we recognize our part in participation in the temple of the Spirit of God. There's a cleansing and a sacrificing that takes place in everything we do as Christians gathered together. So this place is meant to be set apart. It's meant to be different. That means when when people look at the church gathered, they should find cleansing and purity here. They should find sacrifice and mercy here. Just as the priests cleansed and purified the implements and the sacrifices of the old temple, we work towards creating that same holy place for the presence of God. This is what it means that you are the temple and you are holy and the Spirit of God dwells there. We have to remember that when we gather as the church, that this is not something normal. This is holy and sacred what we do together. It may feel just like looking after kids in Sunday school, or it may feel just like helping people in the community, or it may feel like just running this program or that program or gathering as a small group. It's not just that. It is holy and it is pure. When a person of Israel left the camp or they left the city and they entered into the temple courts, they noticed the difference. They noticed that they were no longer in the market. They were no longer in the theater. They were no longer in the streets. And in the same way, when people enter into a church gathering, when they enter into a gathering of Christians, they should recognize that it's different. It's no longer where they were, but they've entered into a holy place. But the teaching of Jesus and the apostles goes beyond simply the gathering of God's people becoming a temple. The New Testament teaches us that the people themselves become temples. So we don't just gather and create the temple, we take the temple in ourselves. 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 6 are two texts that I'm going to use, and so I'll just read them and then we'll unpack the idea of us as Christians as the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So now Paul is saying it's you personally, you're a temple. Or in 2 Corinthians 6, he says, What accord has Christ with Belial, or with idols? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So now Paul is not saying y'all are the temple. He's saying you're the temple. You're the temple. You're the temple. You're the temple. Your body is a temple, and so glorify God in your body. God told us that he was going to dwell among his people, and Paul says when God said that way back in the Old Testament, he was looking forward to a time when his dwelling would literally be among his people. God dwells bodily with us. 
So Paul speaks here in the singular again. How can you, a believer, be united in agreement? And we'll unpack that in a moment with an unbeliever. Because we, group of individuals, are the temple of the living God, and I will make my dwelling place among them. And Paul's saying that's right now. God is doing that. It's in us that he dwells. And so how can you who have the Spirit of God engage with those who do not? Now that word agreement or accord, as Paul records it there in 2 Corinthians, it's also translated as the Greek word of symphonesis. Symphonesis is what agreement or accord means, and as you can imagine just by me saying it, it's where we get our word for symphony. And so the teaching here directly that Paul is giving in 2 Corinthians is not that Christians must always disagree with non-Christians, that would not go over well. He's not saying that there can be no relationship at all between believers and unbelievers, but what Paul is driving at here is he's saying, how can you find yourself in a symphony with unbelievers? How can Christians be in perfect harmony with unbelievers? At a fundamental level, every life that is not centered on Jesus has its center on some other idol, and that will never work. And so these two sections of text here start to flesh out some practical realities about being the dwelling place of a holy God, right? It, it, the 1 Corinthians 6 says that God cares about our bodies. It says that God cares about our minds in 2 Corinthians. He wants our bodies to be kept pure. He doesn't want us to sin against our own body and sexual immorality. He wants our minds and our ideologies and our alliances to not be confused or entangled with the error of false idols. God cares that we be free from the entanglements, both body and mind. Paul is saying that because you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, what you do with your body and what you do with your mind is important. And we need to think about that. We need to think about where are we taking our bodies and where are we taking our minds if we are Christians who are the temple of the Holy Spirit. If we live out our role as his temple, there are practical realities to that. But this church as temple and this Christian as temple or person as temple reality is most often and most clearly understood when we consider both of these things together. And in the New Testament, as you keep going, you'll see that this temple theme keeps coming up and Paul and Peter then drive into this notion that we are both the temple as person and temple as the church together and there are implications in that. How do the two ideas of us being the temple work together, both individually and as collectives? And there's two more short texts that give us greater illumination on this in Ephesians 2 and in 1 Peter 2. So Ephesians 2.20 says this, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here now, Paul in Ephesians is saying that Jesus is the cornerstone. You are all being joined together and becoming that holy temple, the dwelling place of God. And then Peter says in 1 Peter 2, As you come to him, who is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So now we have both person as temple and collective as temple explained in more detail in these two verses. 
Our first verses, if you remember back, our first verse, 1 Corinthians 3.16, that got us kicked off, is focusing primarily on holiness and purity, which are essential aspects of being a dwelling place for God. And now we gain a few more insights into what is taking place and by what power it takes place and by what power it's possible. The picture that Paul and Peter paint in both of these texts is of individual Christians who are temples of the Spirit of God who are also being built up together into a temple or into a dwelling place of God. And a key characteristic of which, first of all, is unity. See, Ephesians says the whole structure is being joined together and then being built together. And First Peter says living stones being built up. So the first thing we see here, if we consider ourselves as the temple of God, is that we are called to unity. Romans 1 says that we're called to be a living sacrifice, and the problem of living sacrifices, as it is often mentioned, is that living sacrifices can decide to get up and crawl down off the altar. There's the same problem with living stones. God puts them in a certain place, and because we're living stones, we decide, well, we don't want to be a stone beside that stone. We prefer these other stones, and so we're going to move somewhere else. Or maybe we're just going to get down out of the temple building altogether and walk off and go build another building. So God has this constant problem with living sacrifices and living stones where we have a certain volition of where we are put and whether we will stay there. But that's not the point that that Paul is making. We just have to realize that we are living active participants in what God is building. And we must not use our mobility and our volition to resist what God is trying to build with us. And it has a practical example. It means that we are here not by accident. We are here because God has placed us here. There is nothing accidental about being part of Lakeside Church in Halliburton in your life. I don't know how you got here. I know how I ended up here. It's not through any set of circumstances that I ever would have imagined for myself. And yet here I am as part of Lakeside Church for seven years. You know, there's people that have come from Hamilton, people that have come from North Bay, people that have come from Toronto, people that grew up here, people that have come from as far away as Harcourt. But we are not here by accident in 2021 serving together. We are living stones that God is placing together to be his holy dwelling place. And so where God has placed you is purposeful. And beside whom God has placed you is purposeful. No stone is unimportant and no stone is overlooked. You have a part to play in what God is building here. And so there needs to be a unity in our ministry and our mission together. It's also a process I was encouraged here because the verbs being joined and being built imply an ongoing process. The new temple of God is dynamic. We're not already complete. We're not perfect stones yet, and maybe not in our perfect place, but we are living stones, and God is continually building and rebuilding with us. When the Reformation arrived 250 years ago to purify and release a church that was bound by law and tradition, The early reformers would say we are reformed and always reforming. God is always at work, cleansing and changing and chiseling and reshaping and molding and placing the living stones to prevent us from becoming fixed in crooked lines or from conforming to a culture rather than to his temple design. So we should be encouraged by God's active role in the process of building his temple. It is an ongoing thing. We are being joined. We are being built into the temple. Thirdly, we pick up on this idea of mobility here. There's an implied value of the person and the church as being a living temple that's not directly in this text, but I think it flows all through the New Testament. 
in which this new mobility of the living temple is a good thing. The tabernacle or the tent of meeting only moved at the center of God's people as God's people moved. The the physical stone temple were static buildings built in a city on a mountain and people had to come to them. But the new temple of God, us as the temple of God, is living and mobile. People no longer only come to God's temple, but God's temple goes to them. As we discussed in more depth a few weeks ago, the Great Commission, Jesus gave his followers was to go, go to all the nations, bring the presence of God with you, cross borders, break boundaries, bring God to the people. And so there's a sense in which the church being the temple of God and us being the temple of God, the temple is no longer static on a mountain that people have to come to, but rather now the presence of God can go to the world, it can go to the nations. And we're to bring the temple of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit everywhere we go. Do we recognize the implications of that in our Christian life? Do we recognize that we're bringing the Spirit with us to the places that we go? That has positive implications in evangelism. It is a cautionary tale in terms of how we use our body and where we go. When I think of some of the places I've taken the Holy Spirit, I'm not always pleased to remember that I am a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit and He comes with me wherever I go. And I have to think about where am I now taking the Holy Spirit? as I go. But it's not just unity and a process and mobility. We are also spiritual priests and sacrifices. I want us to look closely at the final comment of Peter. He says, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So not only are we temples of the Spirit and being built up as living stones into the temple of God, Peter says that we are also the priests of the new temple. I mean, what is, a, what is a temple if it's empty? What is a temple without priests? Temples need priests to serve in it. And this spiritual temple, Peter says, has spiritual priests. The community of God's people are a holy priesthood, a priesthood of all believers who are serving God. It's no longer just the Levites. It's no longer just Aaron and his descendants as the high priests. All the people of God are now priests who are serving together in this new living temple. You are priests of the spiritual temple, and it's our privilege now as priests to draw near to God with spiritual sacrifices that are found acceptable through Jesus. What is a temple without priests, and what are priests without sacrifices to make? In this temple, there are sacrifices, no longer rams and bulls and and doves and, and physical sacrifices of the shedding of blood, but now spiritual sacrifices. What are the spiritual sacrifices? Well, you can imagine what many of them are. I'll tell you what your spiritual sacrifice is going to be this summer, I hope, is that you are going to help Allison and Melissa and Elena and everyone else while I am gone to fulfill the functions of the living temple here at Lakeside Church. There are sacrifices of effort and spiritual gifts that you have that you can give to make sure that the temple continues to run smoothly just as God's people did. Those are the spiritual sacrifices. In part, it's our bodies. Partly it's keeping our bodies pure, as we talked about earlier. But also in Romans 12:1, Paul says that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's the spiritual sacrifice that we give, our service, our time, our energy, our gifts, our knowledge. I think it means that everything that we do with our body is done as an act of worship. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 
And so as we are the temple of God and being built into the temple of God, and we are a holy priesthood that is meant to serve with spiritual sacrifices, we are called to use our bodies to serve. And trust me, we will need your help, especially this summer, to serve in this temple. But it's also praise and thanks. It might include singing or speaking words of praise, as it says in Hebrews 13, 15, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Hebrews says when we praise, when we give thanks, that is a spiritual sacrifice. It's acts of love. It might be giving and sharing, like in Hebrews 13, 16, goes on to say, do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. You, you can't turn to just about any chapter in the New Testament without getting instruction of how we are to give spiritual sacrifices in various forms in this new spiritual temple. It's even our financial offering. The Apostle Paul, when writing to the church in Philippi, commends them for supporting his missionary work for the kingdom of God. He values their partnership with him as a church in giving and receiving, not because he seeks the gift of their offering, but because he seeks the fruit that increases to their credit, he says in Philippians 4.17. So as the Philippians supported Paul in his missionary work, they received the credit for its success, even though they weren't doing the work themselves. And then Paul goes on in verse 18 to says that he is supplied already, but he has received their gift as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And so you just go through the New Testament and you see this theme of the temple, the temple, the temple, of the priesthood, the priesthood, the priesthood, of spiritual sacrificial offering, 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 over and over and over again. You cannot miss the importance that we are the temple of God. We are a holy priesthood. We have spiritual sacrifices that we are offering. And then we have the bookends of these two texts in Ephesians and in 1 Peter. Do you remember how Ephesians started? It said, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Jesus is the living cornerstone. And this is what we can't forget as we are trying to be the temple of God. That we don't do this by our own power. We don't decide what it is that we do. We don't decide what our ideology is or what our ethics are or what our morality is or how we align ourselves. When you're building a building, you set down a cornerstone, and then you align everything to that cornerstone. And so Paul and Peter say that when we are the temple of God, the cornerstone is Jesus. Everything we do is built upon the foundation of Jesus and aligns itself to Jesus so that it's not crooked. He is the only pattern to follow to be a dwelling place for God. And then at the end of our first Peter text, he says that these sacrifices are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we can do anything acceptable to God is through Jesus Christ. The sacrifices that are acceptable to him are acceptable because they're done by following Jesus, not through human effort or human merit or human achievement, but through Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said in Romans 15, 18, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. And Hebrews eleven six says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's only when we trust in Jesus. It's only when we make him our cornerstone. It's only when we put all of our faith and our hope in him and act out of our love and our cherishing of him that then the spirit can sanctify the things that we do that he can make sure that we are aligned to the cornerstone, that he can make sure that our motives are pure, that the things that we do then are pleasing and are a fragrant aroma to God. 
Without Jesus, we would simply have a religion. Without Jesus, we would just have a religion that consists of rites and rituals and rules and works and futile attempts to work really hard to balance the scales in our favor. That's not Christianity. That's just paganism. But God says that because we have made Jesus the cornerstone, we ourselves have become his living temple and his priesthood. And the things that we do as God's people through Jesus Christ are pleasing to him because it is through Jesus. So what does this mean? All of this speaks to our participation here at Lakeside and in our community. We are, as believers, in a unique way, a residing place of the Holy Spirit. The presence of God is with us in a way that it is not in other places. We bring the Spirit with us into this community and into our workplace and into our family. Everywhere we go as temples of the living God, we manifest the Spirit of God in our gathering. Even now, as our gathering is temporarily in the Spirit, we still are the temple of the living God. And so we ask ourselves, is our worship spiritual? Is our service spiritual? Do we take seriously the residence of the Holy Spirit in us? Are we offering our spiritual sacrifices? Do I preach in reliance on the Spirit? Do you give spiritually? God accepts our worship, our giving, our service, my preaching, not because they're excellent or even well-meaning, but because they're offered through Jesus Christ and our love of Him because we view him as God views him, as a precious cornerstone. The old tent and the old temple were shadows of what is to come. What's now, even in this, is actually just a glimpse of what is to come and will be. The disciple John says in 1 John 3, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. And that's a humbling reminder. We are the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwells in us. We are gathered the presence of God as the church in our community. We are meant to be holy and pure and to be offering spiritual sacrifices, but what we will be has not yet appeared. We still are not perfect. We still are not perfectly holy. We still do things imperfectly. We're still living stones that crawl down sometimes. And John says, what we will be isn't quite yet. This is still just a shadow of what is to come. Perfect unity, perfect community, perfect presence with God. But he goes on, he says, But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the essence of ourselves as Christians and as a church, as the temple of God. Our hope is in the appearance of Jesus Christ, that that perfect purity and holiness will come. But now, in this life, as we are in the now-but-not-yet kingdom, as Christians, we are the holy temple, we are pure and precious, and our sacrifices are acceptable through Jesus. So how now do we live as a church? How do we live as people in this fundamental knowledge that we are the temple of the living God and that we are priests offering sacrifices in that temple? This has major implications on how I live my life, on how you live your life, and on how we operate together as a people of God. We are the temple of the living God. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for this word. Father, we thank you for the picture of your presence with us in the temple. Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with your presence. 
How incredible that you still strive to build relationship with us when we rebel and we wander and we forget and we're simply negligent in the way many times Israel was negligent of the old temple, how it fell into disrepair and disuse and got filled and cluttered with things and they lost the book of the law. They didn't remember it. They had to clean it out and reconsecrate it. Lord, as we go to our life groups and our small group studies this week, we'll be looking at some of those things about how do we consider ourselves holy? How do we cleanse? How do we consecrate? How do we not let the temple of the living God become cluttered and disordered and crooked? Father, there's just so much richness here for us as we lean into 1 Corinthians 3.16 and the remembrance that we are the temple and the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.